But we are so excited to be here with you this morning, and we are glad that you're here with us via this technology. This morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context. We're going through a series called Jesus, Miracles, and Mercy. Jesus, Miracles, and Mercy. Jesus has healed 10 lepers. Jesus healed the lame man whose friends lowered him down through the hole in the roof. And Jesus talked about the greatest miracle of all, new birth, in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Well, today, we're going to talk about two miracles for two different people, but it's really Jesus' mercy that steals the show. You see, Jesus has just calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee, so he shows his disciples his power over nature. And then Jesus just cast out demons from a demoniac. Legion, they called themselves. So he demonstrates his power over the spiritual realm. Well, now his disciples and the crowd, and we here today are going to see Jesus' power over life and death and suffering. Typical of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel, he sandwiches stories together. His favorite term is immediately. It's like a highlight reel of Jesus' ministry. So he's sandwiching these stories together. It's kind of a compare and contrast that we're going to do today. Today we're going to talk about two very different characters whose lives intersected with Jesus at the same moment, the same day, the same hour, in the same place. And these characters are very different from one another. I'm talking about Jairus and the woman whose name is never mentioned. Everything that Jairus was, this woman was not. Jairus was privileged, this woman was definitely not privileged, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So would you join me in prayer as we dig into Mark chapter 5 this morning? God, we just want to thank you so much for all that you are, for all that you've done, And for all that we can be through your son, Jesus Christ, we thank you for his death, for his burial, for his resurrection. We thank you for the incredible privilege we have as children of God. Father, we thank you so much for that gospel message today. And we pray that the message of your son, Jesus, would be at the forefront of this service. That we would forget everything else but remember Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. God, we thank you for your son. In his name, amen. You know, there's a lot of talk today about systemic racism, about white privilege within the Black Lives Movement. And you know, this isn't a time for us to point finger, cast blame, make excuses. This is a time for us to grow a little more introspective and look into our own lives, examine our hearts and see what role we have played in this conversation. And it's obvious, isn't it? Black lives truly matter. They matter to God. They most certainly matter to us. And let me state the obvious. This this Bible that we preach from, this Word of God, it doesn't reference one single white Canadian. Did you realize that? Jesus himself is not white. He's a Jewish man. And we would do well to remember that. But we are, we are privileged, aren't we? We are so privileged as Canadians. I mean, we have incredible wealth. We have relative peace. We have rights and freedoms that the rest of the world will never get to experience. 
But not only that, I mean even more so we are spiritually blessed in heavenly places. Paul tells the church in Ephesus we are spiritually blessed in Christ. We are privileged. The first thing we need to do is admit that we are privileged. Pay attention to the conversation. Pay attention to the pain that people are going through around the world today. And understand that there are people around the world who are underprivileged, who are discriminated, who do experience prejudice. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who thirst. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hurting. Jesus' mission is for all people, especially the underprivileged and especially the marginalized. Now in Mark chapter 5, the two characters that we're going to look at today, they illustrate this whole topic very well. So that's what we're going to be talking about. But more importantly, we get to see Jesus' response to their different states of life, privilege and underprivilege. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to favor one? Is he going to overlook the other? Is this a lose-lose situation? How does Jesus respond? That's what we're going to talk about. So let's meet our two characters and let's understand uh, the context of this day that would forever change their lives. This is Jairus. Jairus is a man. That's the first thing that we find out about Jairus, which means he is already at an advantage in an ancient Jewish culture. To be born as a man meant that you already had certain advantages over women in an ancient Jewish context. You know, women, women had very little rights unless they were married into a patriarchal family, which was usually prearranged when they were very young. Men had more opportunities for education. They had more opportunities for occupation. And they basically held control over the marriage. They were the ones who had the responsibility of divorce or not divorce, which was basically a death sentence for these women. That's why Jesus talks so much about widows. He talks so much about orphans. This is why Jesus talks so strictly about marriage and divorce, because Jesus gave women the equality and the dignity that they deserved. And in that ancient culture, that was so countercultural for the day. In this time that we're talking about, it was definitely an advantage and a privilege to be a man rather than a woman. Now, praise God that there, there is more conversation about that in our day. And equality and dignity is something that we are striving to see more and more of in our time. You know, he's a ruler of the synagogue. That's the next thing we learn about Jairus is that he's a ruler. He has a position. He has an occupation. Here's, here's what being a ruler meant in the synagogue. It means he was likely wealthy, he likely held authority, and he likely had a proper standing in society. The local synagogue was where the Jewish people would study and celebrate the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. For Jairus to be the ruler in the synagogue meant that he was in control of all the arrangements of the services, all the aspects of worship, do you know, his title for today, for that same position, is president of the synagogue. President. Now that's quite a position, right? It would come highly regarded in the community. Jairus is likely wealthy because of this situation. Uh, we see in Mark chapter 5, he has a home, he has a family, he has hired hands. 
He would have authority with his position. People would perk up their ears when he talked. He would be respected in the community, in the marketplace, among the people. And he had a high social standing. He was upheld. He was respected. His position brought him influence and authority. He also has a family. And if you know anything about how we've been teaching through the Bible, through the Old Testament, family was a big thing in Hebrew culture. Big time. Children were a blessing from the Lord. Well, Jairus has a family. He has a wife, and together they have an only child, a daughter. And she's 12 years old. I have a daughter at home. And I think about all the memories. I think about favorite food. I think about favorite song, favorite TV show, toys. I think about bedtime routines. I think about songs we sing. sing. I think about dancing with my daughter. I think about her doing daddy's hair. Remember, it's Father's Day next week, all right? Don't forget. I'm talking to my family. Don't forget. Um, But my dad, when we were kids, myself, my two younger sisters, uh, he wrote songs for each of us. And he would sing each of us our own song often. Well, I've chosen to sing that same song written by my dad for me to my kids. And my daughter expects it every single night. I think my son's growing out of it a little bit. But my daughter Jade, even last night, she asked me, Daddy, you sing my little girl Jade. So I'm singing her her song. I'm rubbing her forehead. Her eyes are blinking slowly. She's looking back at me. And in those moments, I think over the course of her life, of what it could be, what her life might be, learning to ride a bike, going to school for the first time, friends, drama, becoming a woman, meeting a nice young man that I approve of who's scared of me, like in a respectful way, dads, you know what I mean. But Jairus probably had all the same hopes and dreams for his daughter that a normal father would. Maybe he had a song that he loved to sing for his daughter. Maybe as his daughter is getting older, she's 12 years old now, she's into those awkward teenage years. And in Jewish culture, when, when the children became 12, they began to be viewed as adults, as maturing. When Jesus was 12, that's when he was teaching in the temple, when his family left him back in Jerusalem. Maybe he's thinking, my little girl is not so little anymore. And soon she's going to be getting ready to leave the nest She's going to be married. Uh, Her mother and I, we're going to be left as empty nesters. And maybe he's struggling through all of those emotions. But our story has more tension than that. Have you realized in every story there is tension? There's got to be tension to make it a good plot. Behind every person, there is pain. There's a struggle. Everybody is facing something. If If we've learned anything... From this series, Jesus, Miracles, and Mercy, it's that we all need a miracle, we all need Jesus' mercy. And it's only when we come face-to-face with our need, with our desperate need, that we take that step of faith and turn to Jesus because he's the only hope. Here's the struggle. Here's the issue. Here's why Jairus is desperate. His little girl, 12 years old, is about to die. She's sick. The clock is about to strike midnight on his little Cinderella. He doesn't know what to do. 
He's probably expounded all of his influence trying to find a cure, trying to find a solution to the problem. He's trying to handle this as best he can. Just like when he's in the synagogue handling all the arrangements of the services, he's trying to handle this situation. He doesn't know what more to do, so he does what he never thought he would. He runs to Jesus. He hears that Jesus is in town. Jesus just crossed the sea and has just arrived in his town, gotten off the boat, and he decides, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for it. And he starts running to Jesus. In that moment, he was so desperate that he was willing to risk it all because he loved his little girl. He put his name, his reputation, his occupation, his social standing all on the line because he didn't know what else to do. And he finds himself running to Jesus, desperate, risking it all in hopes that Jesus would be able to save his little girl. Jesus wasn't necessarily on the invitation list at the local synagogue. The death plot for Jesus was already in the works amongst the religious community. I'm sure Jairus knew that. I'm sure Jairus knew that it was totally taboo for a ruler of the synagogue to go and plead with Jesus, that crazy rebel from Nazareth that all these stories were surrounding. Jairus risks it all, and we come to Mark chapter 5 and verse 22. This is where we pick up the story. If you look at verse 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. Jairus is desperate. He's knelt down at the feet of Jesus, just like that leprous man who returned to thank Jesus, fell down embracing the feet of Jesus, and here's what he said. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. Touch her so that she may be made well and live. And then Jesus went with him. Desperation. This is where our second character enters into the story. And Mark has this interesting way of combining these stories and he just slips this story in between it. John Mark is, is recording the, the memory and the perspective of the apostle Peter as Peter is here witnessing these activities. Look what happens. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him because wherever Jesus went, he drew a crowd. Everywhere Jesus went, people were so compelled. They wanted to be in the presence of Jesus. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They wanted to see what he was going to do. And I thought to myself, is that the same today? We preach the message of Jesus. We preach the gospel. Do people long to come and be present as the gospel is being preached, as the story of Jesus is being given? Because it's the same power. It's the same person. It's the same message. People should be drawn to the message of the gospel. It's not about lights. It's not about camera tricks. It's not about competing online like Steve was talking about. It's about the content of this message and this person that is Jesus Christ. He drew a crowd everywhere he went. Some versions say they were pressing in on him. One alternate passage says that the crowd was crushing in on him. This is a huge crowd following Jesus wherever he went. And then there was a woman. This is our second character in the story. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. 
She had spent all that she had, was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. I love that picture. Let's talk about this woman. This woman is our second character in the story. And the first thing we realize about this woman is just that, that she's a woman. We already talked about how men, just by virtue of being born male, were already privileged above women in this ancient culture. She can't control that. She can't change that. Here's the other point I want to make. She's unnamed. Jairus' name was given right away. His profession was given right away. This woman has no name. No name at all. She's just called a woman. Actually, that's not really true. What she's called is the woman who had had the issue. She was known by her pain. She was known by her struggle. Her struggle was her slogan. People identified her because of her place, her pain, her position. (laughs) What a way to be known. What Maybe, maybe that's all people knew about this woman. Maybe, maybe that's all people cared to know about this woman. Do you, ever, do you ever judge somebody just on face value or maybe where they're at in society? You never even get to know their name. She's unnamed. And she's had 12 years of suffering. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this woman has suffered for 12 years and Jairus' daughter had been alive for 12 years. You know, one speaker was saying, if this was a good movie, this would be a flashback scene and we would go to the local hospital, which there really wasn't in these ancient days, but just just imagine this with me. We go to the local hospital 12 years earlier and in one room, there's joy and anticipation. In another room, there's pain and suffering. In the first room is Jairus and his wife and they've just heard news that they've just had a beautiful baby girl. And their minds are running with everything their life would be. And then in the very next room is this woman. And she just got word from the doctor that there's nothing more they can do. And she's just going to have to live this way. The number 12 is all throughout scripture. I don't want to put too much weight into numbers and, you know, you can... Just let your mind run wild with that stuff. But the number 12 is mentioned in Scripture over 180 times. I mean, you have 12 tribes of Israel. You have 12 spies. You have 12 baskets left over after Jesus feeds the crowds. You have 12 disciples. You have 12 months in a year. You have 12 hours in a Jewish day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. The number 12 signifies completion, perfection, and finished. It was the 12th hour for both of these characters. Their time was coming to an end. The clock was about to strike midnight. They're desperate. They're at the end of their rope. The sun is setting. Life is finished. It was time for her to act. What was she suffering with? Let's talk about that. She had a discharge of blood, a hemorrhage. Now, ladies, I apologize for even trying to consider what that pain might be like or how I would even describe it today. I have no idea. Let's just put that right out there in the open. This is an awkward topic, but this is far more than cramps. This woman is bleeding. 
and it won't stop. And here's what this meant for this unprivileged woman. It meant that she was cut off, she was excluded, and she was cheated. Let me dig into each of those. It meant she was cut off religiously. Jewish law says that when a woman was in her time of the month, she was unclean. She can't touch anybody. Nobody can touch her or they would be unclean also. It, all, it went as far as if she touched a piece of furniture and the next person touched that same piece of furniture, they would be unclean for the rest of the day and had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. Leviticus chapter 15 tells us so much more. Uh, it was a seven-day quarantine for a normal period. But this woman made it to the end of her seven days and the bleeding never stopped. She made it to the end of the month and it didn't stop. She made it a few months. She made it six months. She made it six years. Now it's 12 years later and it hasn't stopped. She's unclean. No physical touch. Strict social distancing. Kind of like the lepers that we talked about last week. They had to be outside the community. Ostracized. Marginalized. Which leads into our next point. She was excluded from society. Did she have a husband? Had she had kids? Was she able to have kids? If she was able to have kids, would she risk living with them and being with them? Would she be able to kiss them goodnight for fear that they would be isolated and ostracized and marginalized? Or did she cut her losses and leave the community alone? Nobody around her, no friends, no physical touch. I mean, let's just consider that for a moment. What if you could never touch ever again? Let's just say, God forbid, that COVID-19 just kept getting worse and restrictions became far more imposing and we all had to physical distance ourselves and isolate and no more physical touch. You can't high five, you can't shake people's hands, you can't put your arm around your friend when they're hurting, you can't give a hug, you can't pick up a child. What would that be like? Physical touch. It communicates so much. And then this is almost worse of all. She was cheated by the very ones whose profession it was to help her. She was cheated by physicians, by doctors. Now this is in ancient times and these would be very archaic medical practices. But still, she had spent everything she had. Maybe she borrowed money from friends. Maybe she had money from family. She spent it all on these doctors, but she just kept getting worse. Now she's broke and she's alone. Now, some of those medical practices, let me tell you of one that a, a pastor mentioned. Holding on to goat's dung. Yeah, you heard me right. Carrying around goat's dung. That was supposed to be a treatment for this issue this woman was experiencing. Can you imagine? I just want to say I'm so thankful for our healthcare system, for our medical professionals, for our frontline workers. I am so glad that I don't have to carry around goat's dung because that's going to solve my issue. In fact, many of the common treatments for what this woman was going through would have caused her more pain and discomfort and more issues than just the original issue she was facing. She had spent everything and been cheated by these doctors. She's alone. She's outside the community. She's by herself. And her time is up. She's thinking, I've had it. 
I'm at the end of my rope. I have to do something. She is desperate. This is the only point that she can share with Jairus. She is desperate. She hears that Jesus is coming into town that day and she decides, this is my chance. This is the time for me to make a move. So she decides that she's just going to sneak in the crowd and watch to see what takes place. She's going to hide. She's not going to let anybody know she's there. If people find out that she's not socially distancing or respecting her isolation, if she's making these other people unclean, she could go to prison or worse. She decides this is the day. I'm going to sneak. I'm going to hide in the crowd. I don't want anybody to see me. And maybe she overheard the conversation between Jairus and Jesus. And Jairus says, if you just lay your hands on my daughter, she will be made well. She will live. And this woman decides that's exactly what I need. Physical touch. I just need a touch from Jesus. I'll just sneak through the crowd. I'll sneak up behind him so as to not be seen. And I'll just do a little touch on the corner of his coat. Some versions say just the hem of his garment. I'll just touch the very tip. He shouldn't be unclean. Nobody will see. I'm not going to hurt anybody. Let's just see what happens. She's desperate. You know, when you compare these two characters... It's pretty clear who's privileged and who's underprivileged. You know, the second point that's clear is how much control they have over their situation. This woman can't change anything that she's experiencing. She's tried. She wants to be normal. She wants to be in society. She wants to be accepted. She wants to be respected. She wants to be with a family. She wants to be friends. She wants to have a place and a purpose. And she can do none of that. The only thing they share in common is their desperation. You know, touch communicates a lot of things. But mainly, touch communicates trust. You know, I, I picture my kids when they're running and they're saying, Daddy, Daddy, they have tears coming down their face. Either they're scared or they're hurt and they're running for me. It's because they trust me. I think about when you hug your spouse, when you hold your spouse. I think about when you shake hands in a business deal. Touch communicates trust. This woman is reaching out to grasp just a piece of who Jesus is. She's reaching out in faith. Just like those lepers had to take steps of faith before they experienced cleansing, this woman is reaching out in faith to touch Jesus. Now here's where we shift our focus to Jesus. You know, every sermon needs to have a focus on Jesus. Otherwise, it's just a story with moral principles or it's just a story. We need to talk about Jesus because he is the transformational element in every story. He's the power to change in every story. It's all about Jesus. The whole story is his story. All of history is his story. It's all about Jesus. That's why we're here this morning. That's why you're watching this morning. That's the message that God has for you. It's all about Jesus. Let's look at Mark chapter 5 and verse 29. It says, immediately, when that woman touched just the hem of his garment, the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And then look at Jesus' response. In a moment she is healed, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, 
It has nothing to do with his garment. It has nothing to do with the hem of his coat. It's about the man wearing the coat. He is the element for change. He is the power. Immediately, which is Mark's favorite word because he, he goes through these stories so quick. Immediately, Jesus turned in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now I want you to keep in mind how this story started. Jairus is standing right here next to Jesus and Jairus is fidgeting like nobody has ever fidgeted in their life. I have so little time. My daughter could be gone at any moment. Jesus, we need to keep going. Jesus stops. He looks and he asks this pointed question, who touched me? Well, then the disciples are standing there and um, One writer says that it was Peter who said this. His disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing around you. You see the crowds wanting to touch you. You see the people all around you crushing in on you. And yet you are saying, who touched me? Do you hear the sarcasm in his voice? Jesus, look at the crowd. Look at all these people. You're concerned about one person touching you? How many people have touched you since you got off the boat? Why are you concerned about one person? But Jesus keeps asking, who touched me? You know, there are so many people. It's like a COVID-19 nightmare. Everybody's just on top of everybody and, and they're all shoulder to shoulder. Jesus is concerned about who touched him. You know, Jesus is still on his journey to Jairus's house. Jairus wants to get there as soon as possible. But Jesus stops in the middle of the crowd And he doesn't ask why, he doesn't ask how, he asks about a who. Why was Jesus so concerned about a who? I want to give you a few reasons. First of all, Jesus never just sees a crowd. Jesus never just sees a group of people. Jesus never just sees numbers. Jesus sees individuals. Jesus sees faces. Jesus sees suffering and pain joy and dreams and hopes. He sees people and he knows people. He doesn't just see the crowd like the disciples saw the crowd. He sees people for who they are. Jesus doesn't paint with a broad stroked brush. He sees individuals and if God has the hair on your head numbered and he cares for the sparrows, how much more does he care for you personally? Jesus sees people, specific people. But I think it goes beyond that. Jesus knew that part of this woman's struggle was her embarrassment, her shame, her ridicule, her separation, her marginalization. It wasn't just her physical issue. It was how she was treated by the people around her. Jesus knew that that was a great deal of this woman's issue. And he was going to call her out. He was going to give her opportunity to step out in faith and step out of her fear. We're talking about Jesus, and here's what he does. He stops in the crowd, he turns, and he looks for specific individuals. He asks a pointed question. He calls out, who touched me? Look at the response that he gives to this woman. I love this. This is actually from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8 and verse 47. I love the way that Luke digs into the details of the story. He fleshes it out a little more. Luke chapter 8 and verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, that would be this woman's biggest fear. 
that these people found out that she was unclean, that she wasn't respecting her social distancing, that she had come out of her isolation before she was cleansed. When she saw that she was no longer hidden, she came trembling and falling down before Jesus. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now just picture being Jesus. This woman has just confessed to breaking so many Jewish laws right now. This whole crowd around has just heard her declare in the presence of all the people that she was unclean. But when she touched Jesus, she was healed. What is Jesus to do? Well, if he was going to follow the law, and if he, he was going to speak religiously, he would tell her, you just broke the law. All of these people, including myself, are now unclean. We all have to go into isolation until we are ceremonially cleansed. Now Jairus' daughter is going to die because you interrupted this journey. I'd be tempted to say that, wouldn't you? You just imagine you're in a crowd of people and one of those people declares, I have COVID-19, <laughs> right? This woman basically says that, I am unclean in front of all of these people. She has just stepped out in faith. Mark says that she stood in front of the people and declared her whole story. Nothing held back. No more hiding. No more social distancing. No more marginalization. No more being outside society. This woman is coming clean in public in front of all the people. She thought she could sneak in private, just like Nicodemus came by night. But Jesus says, step into the light and let your whole story be known. Look at what Jesus does. I love Jesus' response. I wouldn't know what to say at this point. Jesus always knows what to say. And he said to her, daughter. Do you see that? Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus gives her a new name. Jesus calls her daughter. He names her. He stopped, he looked, he calls out, and then he names her daughter, which is a term of affection, a term of relationship. Your faith has made you well. It's that same term used for that one leper who returned to thank Jesus who was made whole. It's the term for being saved, for being rescued. Because this woman stepped out into the light in public and let her story be made known because of her faith, Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. You don't have to go to prison. You don't have to report to the priest. You don't have to face this angry mob. You can go in peace because now through faith, she had a relationship with him and had experienced his power. Do you know Jesus is willing to give you a new name today? You don't have to be named by your issue. You don't have to live under prejudice. But because of Jesus, because of his mission for hurting, trapped, captive people, you can be freed. You can be given a new name as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a son and daughter of God Most High. But what is Jairus thinking about all this? Jairus is still standing there. And as the story goes, as Jesus is talking to this woman, calling her daughter, men from Jairus' home come and bring news that you're too late. This woman has wasted too many precious moments and now your daughter is gone. 
You've missed your window of opportunity. It's too late. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Leave Jesus alone. Just let it be. Let it go. But Jesus wasn't distracted by this woman. This wasn't an interruption to Jesus. This didn't throw Jesus off his schedule. This didn't ruin Jesus' plan for healing Jairus' daughter. Jesus isn't caught off guard. He turns to Jairus and he says, Jairus, don't worry. Just trust me. Don't fear. Have faith. You just saw what I did for this woman. Watch what I can do for you because of your faith. And then Jairus leads Jesus on to his house. We don't hear about this woman again. I hope we get to meet her in heaven and hear her story. He goes to Jairus' house. Outside Jairus' house, he has hired all of these professional mourners who play flutes, who make loud noises. That's what you did in that day in this culture. Shame and honor society. This was to honor the dead. The more commotion, the more noise, the more weeping and wailing they made, the more they got paid, which points to the fact that Jairus is a wealthy man. And they arrive on the scene. Jesus says to the crowd, he says, Stop worrying. Stop the commotion. This girl is not dead. She's just sleeping. And all the crowds erupt into laughter. I don't know if that was literal or if they were just so surprised and shocked and thought, okay, Jesus is really out of his mind here now. Jesus steps into the room where the girl is, allowing only Peter, James, and John and Jairus and his wife in to witness what he was about to do. This part is incredible. It's once again, touch. Jesus touches the little girl. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 5. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which is Aramaic. That's what Jesus actually would have said. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. It's so incredible how he has so much power wrapped up into that one command, but yet it's, it's wrapped in such tenderness. Little girl, I say to you. It's time to wake up. Nap time's over. It's time to get breakfast. It's time to get ready for school. It's a new day. Jesus says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up. She began walking for she was 12 years of age. They were immediately, which is Mark's favorite word, overcome with amazement. Isn't Jesus amazing? And now we've read that Jesus has power over life and death and suffering. What was Jairus' response? What does he do? We, we don't get to hear. The little girl got up. She's walking. As I conclude today, I just want to make two points. I want to say this. First of all, this story illustrates that Jesus has the power over life and death and suffering. Not just physically, but spiritually as well. The life and the death of your spirit are contingent on your faith in his power to save. That's the gospel message. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just like Jairus called on Jesus to come and lay his hands on his dying daughter. 
We need to get to that point of desperation where we realize our need. We realize that it's outside of our control. Jairus couldn't control the situation. He tried his best. He was used to doing that in the synagogue, just changing the arrangements, making sure the services were in order. He tried to reconcile the situation, but he was too late. Jesus made the point that this is outside of your control. You thought the situation was desperate? Well, let me tell you, the situation is final but it's never final with Jesus. Jesus steps in because of his faith and demonstrates his power over life and death. And Jesus can do the same for you today. That's the gospel message that we preach because Jesus died in your place to pay for your greatest need, your greatest issue, which is sin that separates you from God. Through Jesus Christ, through his power over life and death and suffering, you can now have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's our main message this morning. But the second point that I want to make that we've been illustrating through this passage is that Jesus was countercultural in how he treated people. You know how you define the worth of something? You define the worth of something not by the label that's put on it, not by the sticker that says how much it costs. You determine the worth of something by how much somebody is willing to actually pay for it. When Jesus looks around in that crowd and he sees individuals, you know what he sees based on their worth? He sees people who are worth dying for. People who are worth giving his life for. When God looks on the world, he's willing to give his son in their place. That's how much you're worth to God. That's how much I'm worth to God. That's how much this woman is worth to God. That's how much all of the communities around the world who are calling out in injustice and prejudice, that's how much they are worth to God. You are worth it to God. You are worth Jesus to God. Jesus looked at a religious leader and he looked at an impoverished, socially outcast woman. And he treated them both with dignity and equality. And I think we need to look into our own hearts and our own lives. What are some areas where we have not been treating people with dignity and quality? Where we have been labeling people? Where we have been putting a price tag on the worth of somebody's life? Where God would say, that person is worth Jesus to me. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. And then we're going to join together in one final song. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of Jairus and this woman. Jesus, thank you that you had the right words and the right actions in that moment. Thank you that you stopped in that crowd and you called that woman out to take a step of faith. God, I thank you that you're not prejudiced. Thank you that Jesus died for the sins of all humanity. God, I think of this Black Lives Matter movement. God, I pray that you would speak healing into our world today. God, I pray that you would break down racial barriers as we see in this story. God, I pray that the prejudice would subside. That we would lend a listening ear to the pain of people around the world. And God, that through that empathy, through that love and through that compassion, we would be able to show Jesus to everybody, every language, every race. God, we thank you so much for this amazing gospel message that you offer to the world today. That through your son, Jesus Christ, through faith, anybody 
regardless of their class, regardless of their issue, regardless of where they're at in life, can come to you by faith, calling out in the name of the Lord and they will be saved. God, we thank you that that spiritual miracle far outweighs any physical miracle that we may or may not experience. God, I thank you so much for your miracle, for your mercies today. Thank you for new life. Thank you for hope. God, we thank you for all these things. In your son's name, amen. Joy shall fill my